the twenty-second ancestor was Venerable Manorhita, also sometimes called Manora. When we chant the names of the ancestors, we say Manora Dayosho. <clears throat> There's various different spellings of his Sanskrit name. Once he asked Vasubandhu, what is the Bodhi of all the Buddhas? What is the awakening of all the awakened ones? And Venerable Vasubandhu said, it is the original nature of mind. And Manurhita asked again, what is the original nature of mind? And Vasubandhu said, it is the emptiness of the six sense faculties, the six objects, and the six kinds of consciousness. Hearing this, Manurhita was awakened, realized Satori. I think it's quite appropriate in this uh, story that Vasubandhu awakens the next Zen ancestor with a kind of like Abhidharma teaching, a kind of uh, map of mind teaching. Sometimes I think of Buddhist Abhidharma as like maps of mind. Maps are kind of like a conceptual um, uh, presentation of non-conceptual land, but they help guide us um, to where we want to go. Where we want to go is not actually on the map, but the map is pretty good at showing us how to go somewhere beyond the map. So Abhidharma teachings come in these, in these sometimes elaborate, detailed maps that uh, are describing something beyond elaboration. <clears throat> and this kind of thing is, is uh, the basic Abhidharma teachings are like the 18 dhatus. Literally, in the, this translator said, it's the emptiness of the sixth sense faculties, the six sense objects, and the six kinds of consciousness, but the original Japanese just says 18 elements. And for our sake, the translator mapped it out a little bit more, but it's just because this is classic list of 18 elements or datu, realms or elements, datus, and that's what they are in the early Buddhist teachings. The 18 datus are the six sense faculties, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, or mental faculty. These are called um, indriya in Sanskrit. Indriya is kind of like, like ruler, like the god Indra. <clears throat> so there's like the, 
the kind of the rulers of experience, something like that, the, the sense faculties. We could say sense organs, but we don't really mean um, like the eyeball itself. We don't really mean the eardrum when we talk about these faculties in, in the Buddha's teaching. It's not the physical um, thing. It's the kind of subtle uh, mental faculty, but it's closely connected with the physicality. Like even in the Abhidharma Kosha, I think they sometimes talk about it like, you know, this was a long time ago, <laughs> these kind of teachings before modern science, they talk about some subtle physicality of, of the um, sense faculties. I think they say that the, the ear faculty is a kind of like um, like a little curved, a little curved twist. And actually there is something in there, physically. So it might have been that people were dissecting bodies <clears throat> and they, they thought that little curvy thing was like, a, was like the receiver of... Um, the experience of sound. I'm not sure exactly how they saw these things, but um, <clears throat> the sense faculties are those six. The sense uh, objects or fields, the vishaya or the arta, is like um, color, color and shape actually go with eye. And um, Sound, smells, taste, tactile sensations, touches, and mental images, mental objects. And then the six consciousnesses are kind of um, mediating between the faculties and the objects, right? So this, this is all like in the Pali Canon, the early Buddhist teachings. Uh, this was the map. One, one of many maps. So there's an I consciousness that, um, that, uh, that registers a visual experience. We could even maybe call the I consciousness like seeing. Something like that. I think, it's, I think we could say that. I consciousness is the experience of seeing. And there's ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, tactile consciousness, and um, mental consciousness, mano-vijnana, datu. And and the um, story, in the early Buddhist story, is that that the faculty the object and the consciousness dependently arise together simultaneously. My understanding is that even in this early model, there wasn't the idea that there was a like a color kind of out there waiting to be seen and that then um, just waiting for an eye to come along and see it and a sound waiting for an ear when there's no one in the forest, um, the tree falling doesn't make any sound. I think even in early Buddhism, um, as I recall, it's kind of like that, that the, that the, um, it's a simultaneous thing when the, 
when a, when a sight and an eye and an eye consciousness um, all come together interdependently, then we have the experience of seeing. So, one might say that there's like a, um, there's the potential for seeing, there's like an eye consciousness is part of the mind, but it's not really activated until the eye opens and there's a color there. But it, uh, generally, when the eye, whenever the eye opens, there is a color. <laughs> Except if, it, if it's pitch black, then there's no seeing anyway. So, so it kind of... Um, it kind of makes sense that you don't really have a seeing eye without a color, and you don't really have a color without a seeing eye. So these three, when they're, they dependently arise, interdependently, um, and that interdependence of these three is the experience of seeing or hearing and so on. Yeah. What about, what about dreams? I mean, you have, you're, mm-hmm. you have your eyes closed and you're still yeah. I think, strictly speaking, we wouldn't say that that's a that that's actually seeing, according to this map. Um, that would be. Um, I think we would, in Abhidharma terms, we would call that the the mental faculty, mm-hmm. it um, taking the form of what we of something like a visual thing. Just like we can we can visualize or imagine with our eyes closed a picture of some image um, and, and we don't say that it's actually seeing. Dreams are the same, same, I would say. Uh, it's just that they're even more vivid and more they seem more real and without any effort to visualize, the mind is able to do that. But it's not technically... The, the seeing consciousness is not involved in dreaming even though it seems like it is and the hearing consciousness and all those. <clears throat> Sometimes the um, the hearing consciousness might um, might start um, kind of poking through into a dream, like we're dreaming of um, walking in the mountains, and then suddenly there's this the the sound of the river that's flowing by us in the dream starts sounding like why does the river sound that way? And, oh, it's an alarm. So they kind of blend together. The ear consciousness starts coming in, and then, and then, uh, then we wake up. But the sound of the river that it's blending with is is not the is not an actual a hearing experience. Uh, so that's this eighteen datus story, and and the reason the Buddha created a lot of these maps maybe I I shouldn't say um, without considering it more that all these maps are just for the purpose of realizing no separate self but it's almost like that's the gist of of most of them I think especially the, the map of mind called the five aggregates the five skandhas the map of mind called the the twelve ayatana, twelve elements, which is just the, the sense faculties and the objects, and then the eighteen datus brings in the, the six consciousnesses. Uh, all of those those three popular Buddha maps 
Um, I think really we're taught to uh, point out that we, it, they describe a full experiential realm of a sentient being without there being any um, experiencer needed in addition to these 18 elements. See how that's so? 18 elements, um, each map, like five skandhas, is a complete map of all human experience. And uh, the 18 elements is another complete map of all experience. One might say, what about more complex things like, um, like an emotion or, or feeling or something? Where is that in the 18 elements? And a lot of that stuff would fit into the, into the mental consciousness. Really, um, the, uh, I think these experiences, say emotions and other stuff in the five aggregates, like feelings and, and um, conceptions of things and habitual patterns, greed, hate, and delusion, all these experiences are um, in the 18th datu, which is the, um, called the Dharma Datu, the, the realm of thing, of mental experiences. Dharmas are like things or experiences, mental experiences. Dharma Datu. And later, later Mahayana tradition kind of like took up this idea of Dharma Datu to talk about the whole universe and um, almost like the nature of mind. They kind of like rework this idea, but in Pali Canon, there's Dharma Datu, just means all mental experiences. <clears throat> Would emotions be a tactile experience? I think emotions are like a uh, emotion of anger, say, I think is a combination of tactile experience, because anger almost always has a bodily, bodily tension. There's a, a, especially anger is a f- strong physical thing, right? And it's a mental um, experience of aversion, strong aversion. So I think it's a bl- some things are a blend of different um, datus. We often talk about in Japanese and Chinese that the word shin means heart-mind. Mm-hmm. Was there this same concept in Sanskrit or in India? Because that, that helps me sort of understand how emotions and mental formations are kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. If I think of it as both, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and my understanding is that um, that uh, shin in in Chinese and Japanese is a is a translation of both the Sanskrit word chitta that usually really means mind, and it's also a translation of the Sanskrit word hidaya, which means heart, like the Heart Sutra. Is the Shingyo, but it's actually in Sanskrit. It's the Hridaya Sutra, which means like I, th- I think like the heart organ, and and um, the heart organ and the essence of something, and um, but maybe when we use the word heart in English as like oh, there's a lot of heart in in um, in that action. They they put a lot of emotion into it. I don't know that in Sanskrit they have that same idea, actually, of, um, of heart as an emotional feeling. Thing. But maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, bodhicitta 
you could say is like the the mind of awakening, the aspiration for awakening, but it does have a connotation also of like a feeling. A, it's a compassionate um, vow. It has emotional feeling quality, bodhicitta. Yeah. As I, as I said yesterday, it seemed like a lot of these early Zen teachings don't talk much about more complex emotions. Like their maps don't involve that quite as much as our Western maps. And uh, it might be like an Indian cultural thing. Of course, people always have emotions, but maybe, <laughs> maybe the Abhidharma geeks um, weren't such emotional people. <laughs> They were kind of dry. <laughs> we're just trying to make these maps clearly, and like, and like, well, how do you feel about them? Feel about them? I'm just trying to make an accurate map. <laughs> I don't know. So, um, so anyway, I, I think it's kind of neat in this story that that Vasubandhu's way of talking here is is um, kind of Abhidharma-like and kind of mind mapping like it's um, using these 18 datu. So um, here's some story of Vasubandhu's life, I mean Manorhita's life. Manorhita was the son of King Eternally Sovereign of the land of Nadi. When he was 30 years old, he visited Vasubandhu Vasubandhu was traveling about teaching and arrived in Nadi. Its king was named Eternally Sovereign. He had two sons, one named Makara and a second named Manorhita, or Manora. The king asked Vasubandhu, What's the difference in local customs between Rajagriha, where you live, and here in Nadi? Vasubandhu said, Formerly, three Buddhas appeared in that land, Rajagriha. In your kingdom, there are two teachers who convert and guide living beings. The king asked, Who are these two? So, they don't get more into the the three Buddhas um, that appeared in Rajagriha. They never say who those are. But... um, I imagine he means Shakyamuni Buddha in ancient times who did live in Rajagriha for a while. And uh, I can't remember the stories, but in these seven Buddhas before Buddha, these seven ancient Buddhas, I think they generally lived in India in past eons too. And they might even say, there's some stories about them. They might have lived in Rajagriha. That's my guess of the three Buddhas from Rajagriha. But it doesn't say... Um, the king asked, who are the two teachers in this land of Nadi? And Vasubandhu said, the Buddha predicted during the second 500 years of the Dharma, a great being of great spiritual power will make, will leave home and succeed to the rank of ancestral teacher. That is, the king's second son, Manorhita, is one... And, though my merits are slight, I venture to say that I am the other. (laughs) The king said, Really, if it is as the Venerable says, I will let my son go at once 
and become a monk, a shramana. And, uh, and uh, Vasubandhu said, Excellent! The great king complies with the Buddha's intention very well. Then he gave Manarhita the complete precepts. After that, Manarhita attended Vasubandhu. And once he asked him, What is the Bodhi of all the Buddhas? And Vasubhadra said, it's the original nature of mind. Bodhi is closely related to the word Buddha. They're almost the same word. We could say Buddha is the, is the awakened one, and Bodhi is their awakening. Which is not really different. Um, what is the awakening, the enlightenment of all the Buddhas, it's the original nature of mind. <clears throat> Which is a wonderful statement. Because um, right off the bat there, it, uh, this Bodhi, this awakening, then is not um, something that anyone doesn't have to begin with. It's the original, means like always uh, already, nature of mind. And uh, we've talked about the nature of mind the other day as having these three qualities of the nature of mind is empty, it's um, luminous or knowing, clearly aware, and it's self-reflexive self-illuminating, whereas the third ancestor of Zen in China says, it's empty, clear, and self-illuminating with no exertion of the mind's power, originally, effortlessly, it's empty, clear, and self-illuminating. You defined empty as empty of any, anything yeah. other. Yeah, so. yeah, empty. The nature of mind is empty of anything other than itself. And we can say, what, well, what about being empty of itself? And there's this, that's some debate within the tradition, actually. Some people say, yeah, we can't have any exceptions. Of course, mind is empty <laughs> of itself. Um, and yet those who say it's empty of everything other than itself are emphasizing something like the presence and reality of mind. Yes, it's empty of any graspability, for sure. But um, being not empty of itself is a way of talking that's uh, maybe emphasizing that um, there's a reality of awareness, indestructible, uh, unchangeable uh, presence of awareness. seems to imply like a wholeness, like there's nothing that's not part of it. Yes, it's not empty of itself because um, it's all-inclusive. Everything is included there. And uh, each individual, it's empty of each individual thing, but it's not empty of wholeness or the totality. These are all just 
a little bit clunky ways of talking because words are kind of clunky and, and hard to, um, they're all fingers pointing at the moon. But that's what these Zen people are trying to do all the time. So um, Kazan says, this question, this first question, what is the Bodhi of all the Buddhas? What is the awakening of all the awakened ones? Kazan says, this question is the first that must be asked in the study of the way. Bodhi means the way, the Tao. And um, that's um, actually true that in, um, long before these Zen people came on the scene in early um, Chinese Buddhism, there, of course, had this huge project of translating all this Sanskrit tradition into Chinese. And there were some great translators like Kumara Jiva and Xuanzang are some of the ones who still don't improve on their translations. And uh, it might have been one of those two. I'm not, I can't remember who, who was the first to um, translate Bodhi as Tao. Does anyone know who was the first to do that? I think it was it was um, it was way back. <laughs> so that of course this this idea of Tao was in China way way back, probably around the time of Buddha, around 500 BC or somewhere back there. This idea of the way, the Tao, um, arose in in China. Uh, as um, like the way things are, and it's and it's mysterious and inconceivable, so it has some correlations. It's you know it's a different tradition, but I think that it was so prominent in Chinese culture, and had similar enough connotations to um, the center prominent teaching of Buddha Dharma, which is Bodhi or awakening, that they're like let's. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's translate Bodhi as Tao. You know, people in that time might, especially maybe the Indian, um, more conservative Indian um, Buddhist practitioners, might have said, whoa, that's a little bit too liberal a translation there. You're just kind of like trying to like put this whole Buddhism thing into your overlay it on your Taoism thing and like shouldn't we like make some distinctions and of course there are many distinctions that they later make but it's interesting I think that they they take the central the central centerpiece of each of those traditions and translate them as the same it's it's the way things are but also well maybe this only works this way in English but when people hear the way I think this is the way, as in this is yeah. how you do it. Yeah, it has a kind of double meaning in English, and I think Chinese is similar like that. So, because of that, they, um, they, these ancient translators translated another Sanskrit word also as Tao, to make it even more confusing. Another central Sanskrit term, Marga. Marga means path, as in the Eightfold Path, and the, the path of practice, which is in, um, in 
Pali and Sanskrit, Marga and Bodhi are completely different terms. They're not, you know, Marga is like the way, the path to Bodhi. But, uh, okay. yeah. The way of Bodhi, if we, especially in, in Dogen, Dogen tradition, we can say practice and realization are not two. So that's a kind. But I think in early, early Buddhism, that kind of non-dual teaching wasn't always so apparent. But uh, maybe in China, they made it apparent right at the beginning by translating both Marga and Bodhi as Tao. Yeah, so whenever you see the way in all these Zen, which they use a lot in these Zen teachings, the, the Tao or Do in um, Japanese, <laughs> you have to interpret whether it's referring to Marga or Bodhi. Or really by the time it gets to people like Heizan, those are kind of so intertwined and because practice and realization are not too... No, wait a so isn't it redundant to say the Buddha way then? The Buddha way. Um, redundant? Buddha, Buddha. Oh, oh, yeah, interesting. Way, yeah, way. the Buddha way. Okay. Yeah. Well, you could say the Buddha Marga. Oh, okay. Or you could say um, Buddha Bodhi. <laughs> like here, that's what you're saying. What is the Buddha Bodhi? What is the Bodhi of all the Buddhas? What, maybe you could, you could translate that as what is the Buddha way, actually? Um, and maybe that's why Kazan is saying Bodhi means way here. Uh, he goes on to say, therefore this question, what is the Bodhi of the Buddhas, means what is the way? What is the Buddha way? <clears throat> People's minds nowadays are blank and they don't ask about the Dharma. <laughs> or another translation is, People's minds nowadays are <coughs> preoccupied, so they don't um, ask about the Dharma. But literally, in the, in the Japanese, it says, um, people nowadays have space mind, <laughs> koshin, and they don't ask about the Dharma. <laughs> so let's say, yeah, people these days are spaced out, and they don't, ask, so they don't, they don't think to ask about the dharma. They're just like, they're like, in a dharma talk, but they're just kind of drooling, <laughs> and they're spaced out. Like, yeah, this afternoon, um, maybe I can go for a walk in the woods. And <laughs> like, so, uh, so maybe black is kind of good here. Um, Kazan's critiquing people in his day. We know it's not true nowadays. Because people do not have beginner's minds. Shoshin, uh, Suzuki Roshi's great term. People don't have beginner's mind. When they encounter a teacher, they do not ask this question. Maybe their beginner's mind is, is, um, is uh, not so... It's a little bit critical term, right? They're, they're such beginners that they don't um, even think to ask a question. I think Suzuki Roshi means by beginner's mind, 
the mind that like wants to ask questions about everything and is not um, stuck in any in any um, old expert view, willing to ask questions. Kazan says, when they have true thoughts about the way, or true aspirations for the way, this cannot be so. The first thing to be asked is, what is Buddha? The next to be asked is, what is the Buddha way? First we ask, what is the awakened one? And then we ask, what is the awakened one's awakening? What is Buddha Bodhi? Here, in this case, the question arose, and Vasubandhu replied, it is the original nature of mind. Moreover, because Manorhita's aspiration was genuine and not a speck of other thoughts entered his head, he asked, what is the original nature of mind? He kept asking. He didn't just leave it at, oh, Buddha Bodhi, okay, original nature of mind, okay, got it. <laughs> now, what about that walk? <laughs> it's like, well, actually, what is the original nature of mind? Uh, because his aspiration was genuine and not a speck of anything else entered his head, he asked that. The answer was, it's the emptiness of the six sense faculties or bases, the six objects and the six kinds of consciousness. At that time, Manorhita was awakened. <clears throat> so, um, the emptiness of these 18 dhatus. So, we could talk about this um, in so many ways. We could talk about it in, in terms of the three turnings of the Dharma wheel. So just for the, for the fun of some map making, let's do it. Let's talk about it in these, how we could explore the emptiness of these 18 realms in these three from the three turnings of the wheel. The first turning of the Dharma wheel is the early Buddhist teachings. Now we call the Pali Canon and um, the foundational teachings of the Buddha, uh, which are the foundation for all the other turnings. And um, so there's, there's this sutra in the, in the Pali Canon, in the first turning, in the um, connected discourses, the Samyutta Nikaya, Section 35, Sutra 85, where the Buddha says, It is because the world is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said the world is empty. So that, I think, is a nice summary of the first turning teachings. They, um, basically, when we talk about emptiness in the first turning, we generally mean um, the emptiness of the personal self. This no, no separate self is, um, is really kind of like the heart or one of the main hearts of, of the first turning teachings. And it's the, it's the liberative pivot. It's the, um, it's the shift of perspective that frees us from suffering in the first turning of the Dharma wheel is there are these um, 
five aggregates, but there's no owner of them. There are these 18 datus, elements, but there's no um, owner of them. There's, there's no experiencer of them. There's just experience created by the 18 datus. Experience is happening, but there's no additional experiencer that would be some sort of thing, some sort of entity, in addition to this constantly arising and ceasing impermanent flow of, of six sense faculties, six sense objects, and six sense consciousnesses. So the Buddha says, it's because the world is empty of self, and what belongs to self, we say the world is empty. And I think here he's referring to like Atman, or a, um, you know, a kind of personal self, and what belongs to the self would be like mine. So we could maybe translate it as, because the world is empty of me and mine, it said that the world is empty. The world means the external world, but also the internal world of uh, emotions and thoughts and feelings and perceptions. All, anything, any experience um, is empty of, of me as some kind of experiencer, and it's empty of being mine, uh, what belongs to the self, mine. So in other words, like um, this emotion is not really who I am, it's not me, but also this emotion is not my emotion. See, there's slightly two different points are being made. The emotion is not me. Sometimes we do identify with a strong emotion. I feel like, I am anger. Uh, not just that it's, it's um, it feels like it's so dominant that like my whole sense of self is this anger. Sometimes we might, we might feel that way. We're so identified with the anger. But sometimes it's more like, um, um, I am angry. So I am the experiencer of this emotion called ang- anger. So I, I have anger. It's my anger. Whose anger? Mine. This, the experiencer, the self, that kind of owns the anger. And we say the owner of, of experience. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I like... And that appears in a lot of these early sutras. Um, Buddha says things like, nothing whatsoever should be grasped as I or mine. And it's nice to contemplate the difference, the subtle difference between those. Nothing like, you know, this body is not me. It's not I or me. It's not the self. But it's also not mine. It's... um. It's not like there's a self that is the body, and it's not like there's a self that has a body. There's two different kind of insights or contemplations. So I think it's nice to contemplate. So the sutra says, it's because the world is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said the world is empty. And what is empty of self and what belongs to self? What is empty of me and mine? The I forms an eye consciousness and eye contact. So it's these three, the eye, the color, and the eye consciousness, and the fourth one is added in, eye contact, which means when the eye contacts the color. 
And uh, at that moment of contact, the, uh, sometimes it's described that way too, when the eye and the color contact, the eye consciousness is born. So really all three of them independently arise. But when they contact, say all three of them contact, or if consciousness seems to um, non-physical to contact, when the eye faculty and the color meet, that's contact, they, when they meet, that's the birth of the uh, eye consciousness. So what is empty of self and what belongs to self? The eye colors, eye consciousness, and con- eye contact. The ear sounds, ear consciousness, and ear contact. The nose smells, nose consciousness, nose contact. The tongue, the taste, the taste consciousness, taste contact, tongue contact. The body, which means that the um, sensory uh, tactility, the body sensitivity, the the physical sensations, the body consciousness, and and the contact of uh, a body and a solidity. And the mind faculty, the mental objects, the mind consciousness, and mind contact, when the, when the uh, mind meets a thought, say, uh, this is what is empty of self and what belongs to self. So, um, it's a it's an early, this is the first turning teaching about the 18 datus and their emptiness. This is the question we're exploring, right? What is the emptiness of these 18 elements? And here's a, here's a teaching straight out of the Pali Canon. What's meant by the emptiness of these? It's the word shunya, shunyata. And uh, empty is shunya. And... Uh, it is what is, em- what is empty of I and what is empty of mine is these 18 elements. Are you follow? This is like the first turning of the wheel teaching on the emptiness of the 18 elements. Straight out of the connected discourses. So are they pointing out those 18 elements as opposed to every other object in the universe? Or are they just an example? I mean, actually, every object in the universe is included in these 18 elements. That's what's a kind of an amazing um, thing about this map, is that um, it's an all-inclusive map, and so is the five skandhas. It's not just talking about the person, it's talking about the entire universe. Because, I mean, name something in the universe. Tree. Tree. So, so a tr- how is a tree part of the 18 datus? Buddhism is always, you know, very experiential about this. So, this tree here is, um, is uh, included in several different datus. When we see it, it's a, um, we, that's the, um, the, the form, the form datu is the visual image of the tree. When we um, knock on wood and we hear the sound, then it's um it's the it's a sound it's a sound off the tree is right 
um, if we smell it, if we take a bite out of it, <laughs> um, if, we, if we touch it, and if we think of it, um, it's all those kind of objects. The tree could be all six objects, actually, at different times. So, so and so anything is, in the universe. This is a map from the point of view of the non-existent experiencer. Well, you could, how about, let's say, it's a map of experience. Of experience, Yeah, yes. it's a map that it completely okay. accounts for every possible experience because of a sentient being a sentient without there being any experiencer. Right. Yeah, so all, I think all the Abhidharma maps are maps of experience. Experience. Yeah, so they're not so into like, um, like modern science, we're maybe more into analyzing the material uh, makeup of trees and stuff like that. In early Buddhism, they were really just into like um, looking at everything in terms of experience. It's very personal. They did actually have these four physical elements, earth, water, fire, and wind. But even those are like kind of the way we experience them. Okay. So um, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, so as I think it's nice to to um, be clear about this point, though, that these these maps, like the five aggregates and the eighteen datus, are um, include the entire universe. <laughs> They're not just like a map of a person. We sometimes think of it as like a map of a particular sentient being. Yes, that's true. But the sentient being, even in the early Buddhism, um, strictly speaking, includes any possible experience of the universe. So yeah, it's, a, it's an experiential emphasis. Yeah. So even with uh, what we would now call uh, theoretical objects, because you can theorize about them, they become mental objects. That's right, yeah. yeah, yeah. They have a corollary in physical space, but we can't see them or experience with them. We can yeah. In other ways, like subatomic particles. Yeah, yeah. So where are sub where is subatomic particles in um, Abhidharma? It's part of the Dharma Datu. Everything. Is. Most most everything we talk in the physical world is part of the Dharma Datu. That's why that particular Datu got really kind of expansive in the Mahayana and talk about the whole the whole universe. Um, what, about, what about more abstract mental formations? axiomatic structures or linguistic structures or things like that that have no such physical correspondence. Is that... La- like language structures? Language structures or, you know, I, like some some mathematicians describe mathematics as uh, true facts about imagination. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Well, I guess from a Buddhist point of view, we'd say, like, the one who's saying that and having that thought mm-hmm. of the axiom mm-hmm. is, um, at that time, it's part of the, part of the mental... Object, and you could say, "What about the axiom when nobody's thinking of the axiom? Right, 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 right. What about the axiom in the fo- falling in the forest when nobody's <laughs> there to think about the axiom? Does it exist?" And of course, the probably the axiom creators were like, yeah, "Of course it exists." But these days, even the scientists are starting to question whether the, even the axioms exist when there's no observer. <laughs> Things will get stranger and stranger when they start when they start trying to like you know, pinpoint an axiom and say, this really exists in all cases. You know, like a particle, is, you know, a, 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 a photon is always a particle. That's our axiom. And like, well, let, and let's, but let's not look at it and see what happens. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, um, I'm sorry. 
Yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, I was wondering, how, how do, and this may be better explained through, you know, maybe another turning of the wheel, but how did they deal with uh, sort of the totality as it relates to different observers, you know? Like in a, like mm. in a top of a system, you have a lot mm. of the same things, and you'll have the, you know, you have, you'll have the Purusha, which is kind of like the, the one sort of vessel of consciousness, you know, and, and beyond that, there's, there's other there's yeah. levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so they say that this is a tree, and the tree has, uh, you know, the qualities of sight and the experience of sight, but if there's, if there's more than one observer, yeah. how, how do they deal with that? Yeah, I think... subjective mediation kind of thing, right? Inter, inter-subjective mm. contact, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, that, there's that as well. And that yeah, as when, well. When, when yeah. consciousness touches consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think you're exactly right. The later turnings yeah. okay. of the wheel um, are going to address this more. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that was maybe why, partly why, the, um, the later turnings were turned. Oh. Is because maybe they felt, people felt like, this early model is so personal, it's so... Um, yeah, how does it, it doesn't account so well for those kind, very kind of questions. So that just wasn't really discussed in the polytheism? As far as I know, um, I can't think of teachings like that. They, they more like say, I have um, a tree experience and you have a tree experience, and we just, we're just investigating our own experience. Skillful means. Yeah, skillful means, and, and to direct us back to our own experience. But of course the question arises, um, why would it be that we... Uh, that we have such similar agreements about trees. Or what is the vessel of experience? Yeah, 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 yeah. So maybe the early first turning is, is, um, is so much more individual emphasis, sometimes even called the individual liberation vehicle. <laughs> and the, the Mahayana turnings, the second and third are both Mahayana, the great vehicle, so um, the vast vehicle, things get vaster and more and more, there's more unity. So that's a summary of first, first turning. If we look at the same question, what's the emptiness of, the, uh, of this 18 datus? Um, from the second turning of the Dharma wheel, this is like, second turning of the Dharma wheel is like, Prajna Paramita, the emptiness teachings, Nagarjuna's middle way teachings. These are considered like um, the second turning of the wheel. And so Nagarjuna, if, if you look at Nagarjuna's um, verses on the middle way, he's got these chapters on all these different kind of Abhidharma topics, actually. And I think he's even got a chapter on the 18 Datus can't quite recall, but he definitely has this kind of, um, he does this kind of um, analysis of things like the 18 datus. This would be like a classic middle way analysis to um, arrive at the emptiness of the 18 datus. And the way, it's a little different method here, right? in the second turning, we have the eye, the, the, the color, and the eye consciousness. Remember that even in the early model, these three dependently arise. They arise dependent on each other. 
and um, simultaneously. So Nagarjuna is dependent arising was there in the early teachings. Nagarjuna was like, wait a second, this dependent arising um, teaching, there's something, there's some secret in here that that um, that uh, people haven't been appreciating, and I'm going to bring it out. That was his unique gift. It, it, all these middle way verses are all about dependent arising, as investigating dependent arising in order to um, realize emptiness, which means like things don't exist on their own. So um, that wasn't really there. In the early teachings, the Buddha didn't say these 18 elements were empty of themselves, that they didn't exist. They were empty of self, they were empty of a personal Atman, but they weren't empty of true existence. But in the second turning now, we look at the the eye and the color, they, arise, they dependently arise, means the eye depends on the color, and the color depends on the eye, which means that you can't have an eye without a color, an eye faculty. Of course, there's an, let's say there's an eyeball, or maybe not, but you can't have a, like a seeing faculty without a color, and you can't have a color without eye faculty. And even, of course, um, mo- you know, basic modern physics, science, biology will tell us that there aren't colors in the universe. They're just with wavelengths of light, and you need an eye faculty to register it as a certain color. Right? So that's kind of like high school um, physics. But it's kind of profound if we think about it, that re- all these colors that we're seeing are not actually out there. It's, you know, very um, basic science. Oh, I, I don't know about that. I haven't heard. Yellow? Well, that would make like infrared. I mean, um, ultraviolet is going beyond purple. But when we combine three different cones that we've got, they, uh, they actually, two uh, of them are uh, coming together. Uh, there's something at the top and at the bottom of the wavelengths. It looks like it's a circle for us because we we make it out of our. Hmm. And and if you have like some animals with more, they have can't imagine what the world looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some have less, and see black and white. Mm -hmm. And uh, another nice one is is um, the optic nerve right in the back of the retina. Like biology has to have the nerve connect somewhere, so it makes this spot where there's no rods and cones or something. So it's a blind spot, right? So we literally, there's a spot that's not registering color, but the mind fills it in. Cool. <laughs> so that, you could say, um, that, that particular spot that we, we can't see right now, we don't see a, like a, a blank spot when we're looking around because the mind's filling in some information around it. That spot, is a great demonstration of dreamlike, um, mind-only teachings. Right? It's like a little hallucination. It's a little hallucination yeah. that we walk around with all day long. Right? There's a place at UT where you can go up to the Student Services Building, and there's a, 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 a sort of like a window up to the sky, and you sit there for a long, for a while, oh. and 
pretty soon you start seeing colors. Uh, and I thought that something was making the colors. Uh, but Miss Simpson says, no, you're making the colors. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some, uh, sensor deprivation tanks, too. You go into oh. these things, right? So there's all these colors that are like, you know, not for anywhere. Right? You're yeah. mm-hmm. just as much yeah. what to do. Yeah, and of course, dreams is is another example of colors. And the is true with like floaters and stuff. If they're, mm. if they're regular enough, your mind starts to cancel. Oh, oh, huh? <laughs> Interesting. A symphony, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we have um. So we de- this is to, all to say that we don't have colors without an eye faculty, right? That colors depend on an eye faculty. And, maybe a little bit harder to open to, that eye faculty depends on, um, on colors. And eye consciousness depends on an eye faculty and a color, both. So it's this tripartite thing, right? That is, 18 Dathu's model, these three dependently arising factors, a sense faculty, a sense object, and a sense consciousness interdependently arise, and we have an experience of seeing. So um, that's first turning. But now Nagarjuna notices this interdependent relationship and, uh, and discovers this implication. I think he was maybe kind of the first one to discover the implication of um, if some thing depends on something else, that means it can't exist independently. Mm-hmm. Maybe it seems obvious, but like, but uh, if we really consider that, it's a kind of a radical thing. That that there's so there's no color independent of um, of eyes. An independent existence is, uh, like Nagarjuna would say, we usually do just, all of us just uh, assume that we go about our day as if things independently exist. Like they seem to exist on their own, because we forget that uh, everything's dependent on other things. So, um, So it seems like colors, when we walk into the room, we just kind of assume in the back of our mind that the colors were already on the walls before we walked into the room. We're just so used to it, right? That's all. So Nagarjuna is saying, let's take a look at that and really like spend some time considering that there aren't any colors until we look at them. And colors is maybe one of the easier ones that we learned about in high school. But um, all, the sound of the bird, right? is dependent on our ear. So, it, in other words, the sound of the... There's no sound <coughs> of the bird that exists independently on its own. It's empty of independent existence. Sometimes we call it inherent existence. Um, Svabhava is this term like that means inherent existence or self-nature or um, own being, those are all different translations. Uh, uh, so no, no um, thing, no possible, every possible experience, almost like thing and experience are almost the same, I think, in, 
most of these maps, that everything is empty of independent existence. Okay, so then maybe this will more sense later. But so uh, I have often read read this in a the, there's modern interpretations of this that sort of fit with say biology or whatever that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out because uh, it does make sense to me that this is a, a map of experience. Yeah. But we hear about interbeing as something that seems to fit in with physics and biology in the sense that uh, every if you if you if you if you're taking it, you know, an objective world view, mm -hmm. like a, a scientist mm -hmm. view, that any given object is made. Of elements that are not that. Yeah, or or, we, or depends on elements that are not it. Maybe it would be Nagarjuna's language. Okay. Condition, conditioned by or dependent on uh -huh. is the way he would, strictly speaking. I know Thich Nhat Hanh exactly. says That's made of, of, but I think he made up that word. <laughs> yes, and but that that it's a it's a. I'm a biologist, so mm -hmm. when I hear hear that, I think, well, yeah, right. I mean, mm -hmm. this is yeah. clear to an economy yeah. in ecology. Yeah, I mean, ecology, ecology is like is a kind of dependent arising. Yeah, everything. That's right. But um, it's it's from this objective point of view that assumes all selves and sort of. You know, yeah, it doesn't. Right? It doesn't really like. Um, erode the sense of a separate self necessarily. It's just like a separate self looking at ecology. Yeah. <laughs> it could be, right? That's that. And, and this seems like a very different thing of mm -hmm. being a map yeah. of experience. So, I think you're right. So what is that other thing? That, is is I, that really I, not Buddhism? It's just ecology? <laughs> yeah, I think this is an interesting topic that um, that um, that Deeply involves the venerable Thich Nhat Han, yeah. who um, who taught this interbeing thing and taught it kind of like ecology. Yeah. Like the examples he Very uses much. are like we see well, in the book we see the cloud because the cloud um, rained down water yeah, exactly. that grew trees that were cut down and became a book. So in the book, there's the cloud. That's that's a really uh, a popular Thich Nhat Han um, uh, story. And it became, I think, Tignan Han became much more popular than Nagarjuna, partly because it's easier to understand. But that. it's a different thing. It's kind of a different thing, yeah. yes, yes. And I have had that conversation with people that, that nowadays people, um, you want to learn about dependent co-arising of the middle way, just read Tignan Han and interbeing, and this is the understanding. But I think it's a different thing. Okay. It's real. Okay. it's... it's, it's not completely different because it's based on the principle of interdependence. So I think that Thich Nhat Hanh's um, teaching is maybe closer to uh, to like the Hua Yan teaching of the dual net of Indra, uh -huh. where it's like it's a little bit more talking about the objective world of every every um, node in this net is reflecting every other node in the net. Everything's dependent on everything. We, we hear that kind of thing these days in Buddhism. Each thing depends on everything else in the universe. Nagarjuna never said that. Okay, okay. <laughs> and all the later people like Chandrakirti, all these uh, Madhyamaka philosophers, they never made statements like everything's 
dependent on everything else. But Thich Nhat Hanh, I think, implies that. And Huayan um, in Chinese uh, Buddhism also implies that. So it's not like, um, I don't think Thich Nhat Hanh's making up this kind of thing, but, but then um, we hear that's like the main version of dependent arising. And I think it misses the... Um, Nagarjuna's emphasis is um, more about, like you said, more about ex- our own experience. Yeah, experience. yeah and yeah. It, br- it brings in the mind much more. In the Thich Nhat Hanh stories, maybe he felt like it's too challenging to start saying everything's depending on mind. He does say that in other books of his, mm-hmm. but the, I think the popular version that stuck was also, it's more palatable. Yeah. It doesn't challenge our view of reality. Right. In fact, it... it, it um, it accords with our view of ecology. Exactly. We know that the the book depends on the cloud. Which just gets you more stuck in the objective world. It could, it could. I think it's a nice teaching because it does it does loosen things up somewhat. Mm-hmm. It's like well, it makes us appreciate the book more when we see everything that went into this mm-hmm. book. Um, the cloud that was needed, that's awesome. It's and how it's Everything, how this vast web of interdependence is um, is a great teaching, and it does kind of. I think if we take it far enough, it does imply that. Well, what about me in this story? Sure. Um, I'm also interdependent with the book and everything else in the universe. And then we start to, then it starts to. We start to turn back on ourselves, and we start to say, "Oh, now it's getting a little scarier." <laughs> like my sense of me being the, the just separate cool observer of books and clouds and now whoa this is about me too and maybe Thich Nhat Hanh very kindly says let's start warming up to this with clouds and books first <laughs> but Nagarjuna goes right to the Abhidharma maps of, that are all again the, the purpose of these early maps I think was to um, generally to um, demonstrate how there is no experiencer no, is another name for the separate self and that's the liberating teaching so dependent arising yeah and the early model was was showing how there's no experiencer in the second turning of the wheel dependent arising is kind of the proof for emptiness it's the way we prove that things don't exist independently have inherent independent existence. The proof for things that there is no actual book on its own. No book that exists, sometimes they say, from its own side. The proof for that is that um, it depends on um, an I and and I consciousness and um, particularly these, these factors of mind so we def- sometimes differentiate um, the middle way Madhyamaka teachings of Nagarjuna and the mind-only teachings of like Vasubandhu. But actually, if we start looking at them, they're very, very similar. Nagarjuna is already like, mind is an essential ingredient with all these dependent arising um, arguments. <clears throat> he just doesn't go so far as to say that there's only mind. He's, he's, more, he's more emphasizing that the, all the experiences that are dependent on mind don't exist the way we think they do. That's Nagarjuna's kind of point. He's not 
uh, making any positive statements about what is. He's just saying what isn't. And the Heart Sutra is very much like that, right? It has the emptiness of the 18 datus is right there in the Heart Sutra. No eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no color, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no realm of sight. Realm there is datu. No datu of seeing or eye consciousness down to, because it's getting, the sutra's getting along, down to no realm of mind consciousness. No mano, vijnana, datu. And everything no in between. Hmm? You said no way. No way. No way. <laughs> yeah. No, um, no suffering, no cause, no, no cessation, and no way. <laughs> no path, no Tao. No way. <laughs> yeah, no, yes. You, uh, you mentioned a bird earlier, and my mind got stuck on something. Uh, a lecture that Suzuki Roshi gave about two different ways of experiencing uh, a noise of a bird. Mm-hmm. Right? He talks about how uh, in a, a self-awareness, the noise from the bird is sound. Mm-hmm. No, excuse me, it's noise. The, uh-huh. the tweets are noise. Uh-huh. And then in a selfless awareness, the tweets are sound, and the bird can kind of, the sound can become yours, and you can become the bird. And my question is... I think he says that like the, the sound aware- of the bird comes right into your heart or something. Yeah. Or, like the, or the bird the, comes right into your the heart. The awareness of bird and sound, It does that map to the 18 different, or is that, I mean, is it in there? Um, is it is it mental experience still, even if it's selfless and the bird and you are? I think this is a, this is a great segue into the third turning teaching that that um, of these two maps so far they're related, but I think this third the third turning map will be more like what Suzuki Roshi okay. said. Everyone got the difference between the first two. See how they're like a little bit different maps actually. I guess my question would be, are they different or are they more like elaborations of, like Nagarjuna was elaborating more yeah. from elements of the original teaching? Mm-hmm. He wasn't necessarily, a, I've heard he's not a Mahayanas really, he was more of a, he was a, he was building off of what he, the early teaching. Yeah, right? so yeah. So it wasn't like, this is some completely different. No, they're not, they're never completely different. Really sep- not separate at all. Yeah, the three turnings all build on each other. Mm-hmm. Not completely different, because um, it's still about all three of these these models would be the emptiness of the eighteen datus, but they're slightly different. And um, and would anyone like to try to point out the difference between the first and the second that we just talked about? This is how, I know this is super subtle stuff. Because there's lots of similarities too. But, how would you put the difference? Uh, I'll, um, I'll, well, I'll read the sutra. If I, I could just try it, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'll succeed. Um, but in the early teachings, there's a, a sutra where someone comes to the Buddha and asks, what is right view? And Buddha says, well, in the normal person, an ordinary person with my 
there is, we get stuck on these ideas of existence. That's how things exist. Mm -hmm. And he said that for, uh, for someone who's enlightened, the idea of existence does not arise. The, existence, the idea of non-existence does not arise. Mm -hmm. And that he's... And then I think Nagarjuna takes that mm -hmm. and says, well, this is how it looks. This is what it what that means in terms of your you're not trying to um, shouldn't try to establish a self anywhere. You know, you or existence. Or existence mm -hmm. of self. Mm -hmm. of having a having yeah. existence. I think that's right. Nagarjuna um, some people say he based his whole teaching on that early um, sutta about neither existence nor non-existence. I would say that first turning sutta is almost like a second turning sutra hidden in the Pali Canon. <laughs> and that's why Nagarjuna picked up on it. Okay. So it would be one way to say it. But I'm thinking more in terms of, um, of the way we heard this one, this one first turning teaching. What is empty of self? Here we're talking about Atman. What is empty of me and mine? Eyes, colors, eye consciousness, contact. And all the others, all these eighteen elements are empty of me and mine. In other words, I I am not the I, and I am not the I consciousness. And those I and I consciousness and color are not mine. That's the first version. And the second turning is um, because the I depends on the color, and the color depends on the I. There isn't an a, a truly existing independently existing eye faculty and an independently existing color. To see how the, those are like, the, actually the, uh, in a, or in other words, the, um, the color is empty of independent existence, is the conclusion in the second turning. The first turning didn't say that. Right? The first turning said the color is empty of me and mine. It didn't say it's empty of independent existence. See that, that difference? I think that is actually the main difference between the first and the second turning. First turning is about the Atman, the separate self of a person, and, uh, and they don't talk about non-existence of things. Well, isn't that, I mean, isn't that the, the distinction is like, in the original it said, this is how it is, and then the second one is like, don't try to establish things. Yeah, because we are, we've already heard that this is how it is, and so don't try to. This is how you shouldn't try to do it. This is how you shouldn't do, be caught in delusion. Or you might say, or, or agrees with the first turning and say, that's right. There's these, this I, this I faculty is not me or mine. And then goes a step further and says, not only <coughs> is this not me, or, is it empty of me and mine? It's also empty of existing. That's a different. Um, that's a different um, insight. It's empty of existing independently, well, which is different than it being belonging to a personal self. I'm not sure that that distinction is that, that big, though, for me. I mean, in terms it's of not, not, that, it's not big. that big. Yeah, it's, it's kind of subtle. It's not that big, but I, but I would understand that is the distinction between the first and the second turning. And, and, and partly, um, uh, one way to talk about this is you maybe have heard the story that the Abhidharma people were always into no separate self. They all agreed on that. 
but they started um, kind of after the Buddha's time, really, oh. like the Vaibhashika school and right. the Sarvastivadins. Right. Sarvastivadin mean, means um, everything exists. Right. And uh, they, they break down um, experience, deconstruct experience in order to prove that there's no separate self. But the elements that were broken down into like my moments of time and, and, and partless particles... They said, those really exist. Right, right. So the guards had to come along and yeah. say, wait a minute, you guys yeah. established something here. Yeah. That's not real. Yeah. And it, you've, you've sort of constructed this, this yeah. idea of some sabha, sababa at the place yeah. of everything exactly. that doesn't really exist. So and isn't that a kind of a big difference? I mean, it's an important <laughs> correction, basically. Yeah, it's an important he correction. Took, mm-hmm. He went back to the teaching and he's like, wait a minute, you guys have gotten yeah. confused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've lost something. Yeah, and... Um, so you could say it's a small or a big distinction, but it is a distinction, yeah. And and I would understand that um, there might be a debate about this point, but that you can have complete liberation from suffering with just the first turning. That you can there are arhats in the Theravada tradition that are completely free from the view of a separate personal self, and which is the root of all suffering. And you can still believe that there's a truly existent world and there still are solid atoms that make up the world and you can be completely free from suffering, is my understanding. So um, that's the first turning and and Nagarjuna, I don't think, would deny that. He would just say, but we can go even further. It's not just about being free from suffering. We might ask, well, what further would there be? And that's, I think, kind of a subtle point and a good question. We might say what further there could be is just this really vast view of the kind of dreamlike nature of everything so that then we can never um, get tired of benefiting beings in all these painful situations. If we just were, if there's a real world and a, a bunch of real stuff, but at least I'm not identifying with this body and thoughts anymore, and like um, um, everybody else, um, it's everyone for himself, you know. Right. Go for it. I mean, that's the difference. The, the, uh, the focus on well, if I'm going to help people wake up, I have to help them see that this delusion is this, this. If you're trying to establish something, you're you're not going to be free. And I'm I'm here to help you be free. So mm. it's kind of like. Well, I think the free question uh, is an interesting one because we could say the arhats really were free. Right. We might say. We might even say, Nagarjuna might say, but there, but there is a subtle grasping of atoms, right, or something like that. They, because they believe in atoms, they believe that there's some thing, and that's a, that subtle kind of grasping, like there really is a basis of this book, right? They, they believe the book kind of made out of stuff, but there really is a basis, and that might be, a, might be the root of some subtle grasping, but... They're completely free from suffering because they know that book is not my book. It's a different kind of, it's slightly yeah, different insight. Right. It's really, there's no me that owns books, and there's no books that could be owned by me, even though books do exist. Mm-hmm. So that's the early yeah. insight. And then later insight is taking it a step further. Yes, that's true. There's no me or mine, but there's also no books. All dharmas are marked by emptiness. It's like mm-hmm. a, a kind of a new teaching of the second turning. But I think the in- interesting thing is, and, it, and I think there is some debate about this, can one be completely free 
um, from all discontent with just the first turning. I, I kind of have the sense that yes, because the root of, um, of discontent is, is really just this view of a separate self. But, but um, one's, the full range of one's bodhisattva activity might not be possible without this further um, insight into the emptiness of all of atoms <laughs> and all phenomena. So sometimes they distinguish this first two turnings like, first one they say it's, it's pudgala nairatmiya, which means the selflessness of the person. And the second turning is dharma nairatmiya, which means the selflessness of things. And that's, sometimes they make that distinction. Well, what's it, why make it such a distinction between persons and things? Isn't it the same? And, well, maybe not, because you can, ha- you can have insight into the selflessness of a person um, without insight into selflessness of, of, of the five skandhas themselves. Like the early teaching is these five aggregates are not me or mine, and the Heart Sutra is not just saying that. The Heart Sutra is saying that's true, and also form is empty. There is no form, no feelings, no perceptions, no formations, no consciousness. The early teachings didn't say those things don't exist. They just said that they're not myself. Slightly, slightly different emphasis. It's the second is just going, is just building on the first, but going a little further, or some might say it goes way further. Uh, And then the implications of that are if everything um, truly doesn't exist on its own, it's kind of like it appears in this illusory-like way. I mean, the early teaching would say the me as a separate self is, is this kind of dream-like illusion. The second turning is like the entire world is a dream-like illusion. So they could say that's actually quite a bit further. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's, that's the second turning on the emptiness of the 18 dhatus. The third turning... I see a slightly different version too. Third turning is like Asanga and Vasubandhu, um, mind only Yogacara and and Tathagata Garbha and Buddha nature teachings, non dual awareness teachings. I think come in more with this third turning, and um, I think it's and again we could talk about this in a, a different approach. Uh, we could uh, look at it more like um, is awareness present <laughs> right now? Yes, there's awareness. Really, this might be the um, mono vijnana datu. When we first look for um, is awareness present, we maybe discover ordinary dualistic consciousness, one of the 18 datus. But we start investigating this particular datu called consciousness, vijnana. And we, um, consciousness means, um, the way I, I try to use the word consciousness is always a translation for vijnana, that means divided knowing, divided into a, the appearance of a subject and object. Uh, so we start to, and that's how, because that's how it feels, right? It's like, yeah, there's me over here looking at you over there, and and my mental consciousness is, Constructing um, um, 
people out there and it's constructing a person over here and I feel as if I'm here and you're there and that's it's called mental consciousness that knows you over there but it's a divided knowing because it know it feels like there's me knowing you like there's a subject and an object divided so we start um, investigating this ordinary dualistic consciousness um, that's always available for investigation <laughs> uh, and we can start to see we could investigate the duality and is it really dualistic like this this kind of knowing or is this duality actually kind of an illusion is it is the vi of vijnana a kind of illusion it's maybe it's really just jnana which is undivided knowing which is this word that's used in these stories these days. Uh, qi in Chinese, but I like to point out that when they, use, they often use the word knowing or um, jnana in this positive sense in these Zen stories. Uh, you could also translate jnana as awareness. Uh, so when I, when I would use the, word aware, use the word awareness for non-dual, all-inclusive knowing and consciousness, for divided, um, dualistic knowing. Uh, jnana and vijnana are uh, awareness and consciousness. So is awareness present? We turn back and look and, yeah, it is, but actually what maybe we're really experiencing right off the bat is just ordinary dualistic consciousness. So then we, um, uh, let's investigate the nature of this consciousness to, um, and its duality. So, um, if it's um, if it's a dualistic consciousness, then um, then it's over here, and it meets the object over there. That's what we call it, contact. Remember, that's the early model. All six consciousnesses in the, of the eighteen datus um, arise at the moment of contact between a, um, you know, mind and an object. So, well, that's, so if there's contact between a subject and an object, then it is dualistic consciousness. So let's investigate um, this point. And, and uh, so I'm, I feel I'm present now. I'm a little bit less uh, engaged in the, um, in the objects. I'm, less obsessed with the objects of experience and I'm trying to turn the light around more and rest as the knowing of experiences, but it's maybe still dualistic consciousness. Then uh, I can start to look for the edges or boundaries of this knowing. Does this knowing, whether it's consciousness or awareness, does it seem to like stop at a certain point? Or does it seem to end um, at you? Just seeing is a kind of is a kind of knowing. So you could take any one of the six senses, including mind sense. But I think taking seeing is kind of interesting, easier to talk about maybe. So it's like um, you know, I I can like see Tracy over here, and he looks like he's five feet away from my eyes, and. Uh, and uh, so does that mean my consciousness 
um, has an edge or boundary. It, it ends right in his face, where my con- consciousness contacts the visual image of his face. Or is it somewhere in between? Is like the contact point, like at two and a half feet? <laughs> or is the contact point on, the, on my retina? You know, it's like... Um, and all of those, I would say, are like just kind of speculation. Um, does, uh, does the knowing of, um, of these images actually have some like edge or boundary? And we might assume it does. It does meet at the, at the color or at the, or at the retina or something. But uh, we can really just sit with that for a while and um, maybe even imagine, kind of try out, could it be, could there be the possibility that um, it's not like a contact point in the middle that's just one model. It is the early Buddhist model. That there's a contact of the... Of, it's talking about dualistic consciousness. But what if um, we, we try on this other model of... Um, it's more like uh, awareness is like space. That it's just like... It's boundless. <laughs> and within it appears... Um, Tracy's face... So, so appears within it as opposed to on the boundary of it his face appears his face is appearing within a larger awareness here we're talking about um, visual consciousness which maybe does have its drawbacks too because we feel like well the edges of the walls are like the boundary of my visual consciousness I can't see through them so um, sometimes it maybe helps to actually close our eyes and um and in a very quiet space, um, then explore this mental consciousness. Does the no- basic mental knowing, does that seem to have any boundaries? Especially when we're not obsessed with any particular thought or feeling. We're just kind of relaxed and, uh, and present. How big is this, is this space of knowing? There is a space of knowing, isn't there? Is there not? We, we, it's very ordinary, but we, if we look for how big it is, it's, the question starts to become ridiculous, <laughs> I would say, because we're like, this is not the kind of thing that has a size, is it? <clears throat> it's not really small, and it's not really big. It's actually sizeless. It's not a physical um, realm. Physical realms have size. This um, knowing seems to actually not be big or small. It seems to actually not have boundaries that would distinguish its size at all. Can you kind of like have, mm-hmm. tune into that experience? So, if we really have the sense, almost like then imagining, what if it's really just um, since it has no size, it's so vast, it. It transcends dimension. It's so minute. It fits into spacelessness. It's um, it's sizeless, and uh, if it's if this realm is sizeless, could it not include everything within it? Almost seems like something that goes out and contacts an object seems a little bit more in the realm of dimensions and size. Maybe it's not really like that. Maybe there. There, um, if this realm of knowing is sizeless, uh, 
if this realm of knowing is sizeless, that means that there is no contact. How about that? Can, can you follow that? We don't even have to say really big. We could just say sizeless. And actually space, which is often used in the me- as a metaphor in the Indian teachings and the Zen teachings for Buddha nature, is like space, like space. Space, we're talking about physical space here. Isn't space actually sizeless? We, we might first think of it as it's just really, really big. It gets go, like outer space goes on forever. We could say really big, but actually, it seems to me like space is actually beyond dimension. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fit in, because again, space is not a physical thing really. Um, it's not really a physical thing. It's the absence of any physical things. And it's actually sizeless. Like, um, you know, here's, here's some space right here. Um, that's not really big. And like, there's that space. And now if I like, take away the hand, that same space is like, it didn't just get bigger. <laughs> and it's not like when I put some space in here, it didn't get smaller. It's like, it's a really nice metaphor for awareness. If, if we say awareness really is like sizeless, then, there, then it doesn't contact anything. That's, I think, it, in, that might be a weird statement. So it might take some time to contemplate. The implications of a sizeless realm means that um, there's no contact of, um, of things, and there's no distance And we can put a yardstick in the space of the room here and measure some distance, but we can't measure the space itself. It's almost like the yardstick is appearing within the space. We can measure two things, the distance between two things appearing in the space, but we can't really measure the space. So we could even say that um, if there's this awareness, space space-like, sizeless awareness. Within the awareness, there can arise an eye faculty and a color, and, um, and there can be like one foot measured between the eye faculty and the color. But, all, but the, um, the eye, the color, and the one foot are all appearing in space, and space doesn't contact any of them. It's like an appearance happening in space. So... Um, if we, if we call that space mind or awareness, then is the mind actually contacting either the eye, the color, or the measurement between them? It's not really like that kind of thing, right? This is like a, a different kind of investigation. So, so um, the second turning of Nagarjuna is kind of using like logic, right? If this depends on this, that means this is empty of this. Ah, if, this depend, uh, if this depends on this, that means this is empty of independent existence. It's kind of logical reasoning. Nagarjuna is known for like sharp, rational, conceptual logic. He's very rational. And that, but that logic leads us to kind of to this freedom from reference points and and kind of dreamlike experience. 
the, the sharp logic in the issue. The third turning is known for not really using logic so much. It's more like this, it's a more creative, it's more experiential um, um, exploration, like we're doing here. This is not really logical. It's more like, imagine that um, awareness <clears throat> has no, no size or shape or dimension, therefore no boundaries, therefore um, it, it doesn't contact anything. It's not so much logic, it's more like deep investigation of direct experience. <clears throat> so sometimes they, that's sometimes why these schools have some arguments. They say, well, if you, if you give Buddha nature to Nagarjuna, who will say, well, like, we, must, we have to be able to refute this and, and um, <clears throat> deconstruct it into emptiness. And the Buddha nature people will say, no, this is, we're not going to even use, um, we're not, not going to try to conceptually prove Buddha nature. We don't have any, any like, rational proofs for it, actually. We just have um, direct experience. And, uh, it's, because you know, rational proof is in the realm of dualistic. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Nagarjuna's method is let's use dualistic consciousness really carefully to unravel dualistic consciousness. And, and the third turning is a little bit, the emphasis is a little more, I, I would say, especially if we're talking about the Buddha nature aspect of the third turning, is more like, um, <clears throat> let's not use dualistic consciousness. Let's use these creative reasonings that are kind of bizarre, like imagining awareness is like space. And, but then exploring, try it on as imagination and then see, once you get used to it, actually, that model that imagined model maybe actually accords more with my intuitive sense of how things are than even like Nagarjuna's rational model. It's more, I think third turning is a little more intuitive. I say third turning as Buddha nature because we have things like the Sandhi Nirmotana Sutra that's like is considered a third turning sutra and that is using some logic and analysis. But when you get into the realm of Buddha nature, it's usually sort of kind of like, it, there's a lot of detailed Indian descriptions of its qualities and how it works and the distinctions between non-dual awareness and dualistic consciousness, but there's not so much logical proof anymore. Did, did you have a point? Well, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a connection between the original teaching and uh, where Vasubandhu ended up in a way that I feel like Buddha was saying that if you if you let go of the view of existence and you let go and, and you don't you don't cling to the idea of existence or the idea of non-existence, that somehow you're going to reach this sort of non-dualistic awareness. And that Nagarjuna came along because at that point in time people were established were trying to establish some sort of essence or essential substance, right? Yeah. So saying, no, don't yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. He was using these logical arguments to try to break that delusion. Mm-hmm. And then later, people were saying, you know, what Nagarjuna did was he looked at the mind of these people and he looked at how they were thinking. Why don't we look at thinking itself? Look at the mind itself. And, and that's how I see it. I don't know if that's, you know, look at the, what he did. Look at what Nagarjuna did in terms of, like, pulling apart the thinking and saying, isn't it about the, what the mind is doing? The mind is constructing these, these, these dimensions and, and, and mm-hmm. parameters and... Concepts of mm. how things are are 
distinguished, you know? Like, mm-hmm. and then he's like, why don't we just look at that, too? You know? Like, Nagarjuna was. Yeah. 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 I'm saying, no, I'm saying that Vasubandhu was like, look at the... Mm. Look at the activity of the mind creating all these, these categories. I think actually Nagarjuna was doing that too, though. If you look at all those chapters of the middle way verses, they're all about how the mind constructs things, actually. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so Vasubandhu, in the, in the Yogacara teachings, is almost the same. Um, you know, he's, he's, using the, the, he's looking at the source of like, you know, what's creating all these... Mm-hmm. You know, there's something, an awareness that's creating all these kinds of distinctions. Yeah, he's emphasizing more how mind constructs things. Yeah. But really, that's all through Nagarjuna, too, actually. Yeah, I guess it's, that's kind of why I see a thread there. Yeah, I, it's I, definitely that's a thread. What I'm saying, uh, yeah, I think, um, I think Yogacara and Madhyamaka are very, very similar. Um, maybe just slightly different emphasis. And um, what would be the. The emphasis may be more in um, Yogacara, maybe more like um, how the mind, emphasizing more how the mind is projecting illusory um, appearances, right? And Nagarjuna is more like just demonstrating how um, appearances depend on mind. Is partly what he's saying. He's he's also saying things like. The color depends on the eye, you could say. That's not directly using the word mind, but it is exploring how yeah. the mind creates illusion also. But I think this idea of projections is a, a di- different emphasis. Um, I think Nagarjuna doesn't use that word, um, you know, like parikalpata and um, projection. It's um, He uses other words that are very similar, though, like right. propancha. So, uh, and, you know, one of my favorite scholars of of this Indian Buddhism, Karl Brunholzl, um, who translates, uh, he's like a specialist in Yogacara and Madhyamaka, he's tra- huge translations, he's really great, and, um, and I got to talk with him a few times, and, and um, his sense of uh, really exploring both those traditions fully is that uh, Madhyamaka and Yogacara are saying exactly the same thing. They're, they're slightly different styles, there's no difference in the view, but... Later, um, Tibetan tradition outside of India in more modern times then picks up on one of the Yogacara teachings is called Chitta Matra, mind only. And the Tibetan tradition, the in, Asanga and Vasubandhu never say this, but the uh, Tibetan tradition, to make a nice systematic map, they, say, they claim that the um, Chitta Matrans or the Yogacharans are um, saying that there's a truly existent mind or chitta um, that truth that actually is not empty and it's a um, it's a projecting mind and it's an individual mind. I think that's what the Tibetan system is trying to make that point. They say they study the Chitta Matra and they say it's a really good system for understanding the mind, but it has this one tiny flaw that they, they claim that nothing exists except the individual mind, almost like the storehouse consciousness has some true existence. The Tibetans claim that, but actually Asanga and Vasubandhu, you, maybe you could read in implications, but they never really say that. And Karl is, is has this view. It's like, they never say it exists. That's a Tibetan thing that came later.
I mean, he's in Tibetan tradition, mm-hmm. but and he says that's it's um, it makes a nice system for the Tibetans, but it's a little bit um, giving a bad rap to this school that's not really making that claim. Um, and then the in the Tibetans say that the mind really exists in order to then, in their system, then we're going to have Nagarjuna come later in their system just to empty out that very last little thing called mind <laughs> and that everything's empty, right? And then, um, and then in some of those uh, Tibetan systems, then they bring in Buddha nature as a kind of like another category. It'll be like, first you have the first turning teachings of truly existent um, entities, but with no separate personal self. This is the Tibetan system, right? Then you have uh, mind only comes next that says all of these images are just mental projections. The whole world is mental projections. Then you have middle way Nagarjuna saying even the mind itself um, depends on its projections, so therefore it's also empty. And, And then sometimes they'll add in Tathagatagarbha, Buddha nature, at the end, and say, now we're, um, we agree with everything up to this point. We agree that Nagarjuna is saying all, all things are empty, but we're also going to say there's a Buddha nature that's not empty of itself. Right? And that's where there's a debate. So some people say, don't say that. <laughs> and the ones that's, that do say it are like, we're allowed to say it and still be in the gardener's camp because it's not a dependent phenomena, this Buddha nature. I think they would say mind, back in this mind only, is a kind of subtly dependent phenomena. It depends on its projections, say, or it depends, and it's an individual mind. Very, very subtle one. But Buddha nature is, is, skirts around this issue by saying this Buddha nature is not an individual mind and it's not dependent on anything. It's unconditioned. It's emptiness is another name for it. But this emptiness is aware. It's a little different than... And so we're not talking about consciousness anymore. And that's the third turning. We can say that the 18 elements are empty because... They're like the movie playing on the screen of boundless awareness. And the movie's empty of, of, of being a movie. The movie's just made of the screen. The 18 elements are just made of awareness. That's why they're empty in the third turning. Which is different than the second and the first turning. Yes? Uh, you think that implies a sort of panpsychist view or pans of the universe like that uh, awareness is embedded in the fabric of reality independent of organic beings mm-hmm. like because it seems mm-hmm. it seems like it, it does imply some sort of view like that yeah it well, it, even if there were no you know um, it's, it's, right? I mean, my understanding of, of panpsychism mm-hmm. is that I might be getting wrong yeah I, I, I might, at least my understanding of panpsychism is that is that all things have some sort of consciousness or awareness. Mm-hmm. So even like rocks, tiles, walls, and pebbles have some kind of... Each one has its own awareness. Mm-hmm. Pan, I think, means something like everything. Across. Across, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So with that understanding of panpsychism, which I think is the main understanding, each thing has its own consciousness, is not this Buddha nature view, because this Buddha nature view is saying that not even people have their own consciousness, really. Not to mention rocks, tiles, and pebbles. There's only one awareness, and it's manifesting itself as um, a bunch of humans. Um, It's one... In Zen, they sometimes say the one mind, but like we say, one boundless awareness. If it's boundless, actually, there's another little, there's a little bit of logic in here. If we say something is boundless, that means there can't be more than one of them. That's a nice little reasoning to consider. If if anything is boundless, it means there's nothing outside of it. It's more than that, right? If something's boundless, it's that it can't, I mean, to even apply the descriptor of one is a little bit strange, right? Because you're, yeah. you said by saying there's only one, you're saying that there's something to enumerate. That's right. That's right. That mm-hmm. one, right? It doesn't Even to say one is, is a little bit strange if something's boundless. Mm-hmm. So that's why in Zen they'll say things like not one, not yeah, two. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes they call it the one mind just to like, just to challenge our usual view of um, seven billion minds. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in this, so if that view of panpsychism we'd say, we, us people are, are expressions or manifestations of, the, of, of boundless awareness. Um, and there's something unique about us sentient beings with minds because we um, are able, through, through dualistic consciousness, we can start to open to the nature of dualistic consciousness being boundless awareness. That's kind of a unique thing that I would say a rock doesn't, because it doesn't have a dualistic consciousness. Right. It doesn't do that. But, so that's the difference between a rock and a human. But we would say the rock is equally a manifestation of awareness as a human is. Uh, and we might even say the rock, going back, back a step to the um, kind of like first turning, mm-hmm. the rock experientially depends on an eye to see it. Right. right so we say is it, yeah, the rock is, what's that? Is it contain the, the it contains everything? Everything is a, a part of it, right? Of awareness. Yeah. Well, if you're talking about it, the rock is a personal experience. <laughs> I think they're non-overlapping magisteria. I think that so. you have Buddhism, and until there's a fourth turning of the wheel that incorporates neuroscience and particle physics, it doesn't have to have anything to do with uh, actual uh, physical cosmology. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's mm. a skillful means. Even the third turning of the wheel is a skillful means, and. It, Regards are awakening rather than physics. Yeah, any anything that comes in words is a skillful means. Right. right. But, um, but there, 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 there's also a study of uh, the origins of consciousness and how, uh, and, and we're far from discovering that. Yeah, yeah. But that study is all happening perhaps. within the one aware, ba- or the, within boundless awareness. Right. The mm-hmm. physical sciences are appearing. And it can, it can go both mm-hmm. ways too. Because here we are, conscious beings, you know, really uh, examining the nature of our consciousness. But the, what gives rise to a physical being from a physical perspective is—it's um, a whole different set of processes. Yeah, yeah. That, that we're really—it's really fascinating. Yeah, story. yeah. But and I, I still don't believe they connect. There may be a, mm. another turning of the wheel. Austin has a great book called Zen in the Brain, and that's really. Fascinating. Oh yeah, yeah. There's so much more. To mm-hmm. Yeah. But from the perspective of the third turning, we'd say that it, it remember, is all-inclusive. So all the physical sciences are appearing within 
sure. the one, the boundless awareness. From that perspective. That's from that perspective. From the yeah. Perspective, from, perspective, yeah. And, and the thing about, the, about that perspective is um, it's kind of like, I would propose that there, uh, there can't be a perspective that goes beyond that, actually. There's, there can be sub-perspectives within it, like the origins of human consciousness and so on, our studies happening within it. But if something's boundless, it, it kind of ends the, it ends the wee, turnings of the wheel, I would say. Um, there could be other skillful means that are more into, let's get into the minutia of, of the origins of, of human consciousness on Earth and stuff. But that's all still happening within boundless space of awareness, right? Like, once you get to that point in, in the system, I can't think how there could be possibly another system that would go beyond it. And you could say, we just get, get more detail, that would be the next turning. But from this perspective, you don't even need any more detail. For what it does, <laughs> you don't need any more detail. But it would be interesting. Exactly, it's you know, interesting. We're neuroscience into psychology. It's totally interesting. It's, it's actually really useful, and it, it enhances that. And the, the relationship of the, you know, re, of the dark and the light. Yeah. You know, really, uh, truly finding how, how mm-hmm. what's the origin of that? What's the nature of pulling yeah. this together? I think understanding more of consciousness and... The dark and the light being, like, relative and ultimate? Yeah. because yeah, I think in a way you could say... That's, from, that's through us. That's yeah. what they need. They need through us, and we're understanding us more now. Mm-hmm. And also matter. Maybe another way to say it would be like this final perspective, if we're calling the third turning here, nothing can go beyond it in terms of um, complete freedom and liberation and ultimate truth. But a lot can go beyond it in terms of um, conventional truth and the workings of how we become beneficial bodhisattvas in, in our life. Um, that's kind of come, come back into the light realm of, of um, we can work with um, more and more skillful ways of understanding personal psychology and how we help benefit ourselves and others. I think that can continue. We can have lots more um, unfoldings of, of conventional understandings. But I think I still want to hold out and say from the ultimate perspective, we can't get a a further ultimate truth, or a more, and I say liberating because um, maybe a way to talk about the, the, the liberative aspect of this third turning is if we then say uh, that this boundless awareness is our self, is our true self, and this is the kind of thing that Kazan does, it's earlier teachings, we're all about refuting any kind of self, any kind, especially any kind of conditioned, um, any kind of self that we would find turns out to just be a conditioned phenomenon. If we think there's some experiencer of experience that's unconditioned but individual and personal, that was the Buddha's refuting all of that idea. And so it was all about the not-self is what's liberating in the early model. In this model, it's more like, now we bring the self back in again, and we say, if I am, who I truly am, is the boundless awareness that includes every body and everything, and each of us, 
that's who we truly are. We're like these overlapping, it's not even quite right. We're just like one self that's manifesting as all these different people and different, different conscious, individual consciousnesses. Um, then uh, then that, that freedom is, there can't be a freedom that goes beyond that. We can say, I steal my, all my psychological hang-ups and I'm a total like obnoxious jerk. But from the point of view of the ultimate freedom, it's like, well, that's okay. There's got to be some total jerks on this planet. And, and this person's willing to be one. <laughs> so, so that you don't have to be one. <laughs> you know, but, but then you could say, conventionally, it's like, well, we should work on the, on the jerks, too. On me being a jerk, I should try to be a kinder person. That's more like in the conventional realm. And that, I think that, those teachings will unfold endlessly through psychology, through neuroscience and, and all. But the ultimate, like, I'm everything and birth and death is just like it. It's just an illusory dance on the play of this indestructible, unchanging, beginningless, endless uh, mirror of balanced awareness. I don't, nothing can go beyond. How could it go beyond? When you say awareness manifests, <laughs> What do you mean by that? I don't know that. It makes it sound yeah. like awareness is doing something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess it, maybe the most uh, most uh, widespread Mahayana Buddhist model for this manifestation map is the three kayas, three bodies of Buddha. So you have Dharmakaya is sometimes said to be another name for Buddha nature, like the Parinirvana Sutra equates those names. The Dharma body, the reality body of Buddha, is boundless awareness. Um, we can make that, and I think Kazan would agree with things like that. So that's, um, and we sh- there's only one Dharmakaya, <laughs> and I know we have this problem with one. It's, it's hard to get around. There aren't multiple dharmakayas, let's <laughs> say it like that. And the pure dharmakaya never appears nor disappears. But, hmm? So, Buddha nature, dharmakaya, I mean, they sound like similar definitions. Yeah, the, yeah the Parinirvana equates these two terms, synonyms. But, but, to you, but for the three Buddha body model, you have this Buddha nature called dharmakaya, Sometimes there's distinctions there too, but let's leave it like that for now. The Dharmakaya, due to um, vows, previous vows, because we're talking about these are bodies of Buddha. Buddha's reality body is boundless awareness, but and Buddha, Buddhas realize that as themselves, and then when they were bodhisattvas for the, on the path for like eons of practice to immediately realize their immediate um, dharmakaya, they made all these vows of like, that were like cultivating selflessness. I keep getting caught up in this separate self and identifying with this individual person. I vow to um, be dharmakaya and benefit all beings in all possible ways throughout all world systems, throughout space and time, beginninglessly and endlessly. Like even so I can go back in time and benefit all those beings, not to mention all the future beings, simultaneously, 
I want to be like that. <laughs> I know we don't sometimes make vows that big, but <laughs> some of these Buddhas, it sounds like those are the kind of vows they made. And uh, vow has power. We talked about intention, right? So, like, then they realize Dharmakaya, it's like beyond their wildest dreams. And then, um, but this vow has, like, power still. So the vow has this effect of, like, the Dharmakaya expressing itself as we call rupakayas, like form bodies, which include the bliss body that's like um, um, invisible to most. This is like, you know, Mahayana Buddhist cosmology now. It's just another map, a far out map. Mahayana isn't a far out map. (laughs) Sambhogakaya is like, you know, manifesting, expressing itself as like... um, these kind of light bodies in these pure lands that are like not in physical locations, even though we say Amitabha's pure land to the west. To the west of where? <laughs> it's always to the west. <laughs> but once you leave this planet, there is no east and west. Anyway, it's like, I would say they're kind of like, they're unlocated locations. And they're, they're invisible they're to us ordinary humans, but, but bodhisattvas progressing on their last stages towards Buddhahood can then hang out with these, these um, bliss body Buddhas like Amitabha and get teaching from them like Asanga. Supposedly, some people say Asanga didn't discover all this stuff. He went to this pure land of Maitreya Buddha and kind of in a kind of meditative absorption and kind of got the download from this bliss body of Maitreya of all this all these teachings and he brought it back to the human realm Mahayana has these kind of teachings <laughs> so that so mani- how does the Dharmakaya manifest or you could say manifest or express itself or um, in manifestation expression um, how does it Take form. Appear, how does it appear? Um, it appears as these rupakayas, form bodies. So there's the bliss body, and then nirmanakaya is like Shakyamuni Buddha. We consider like the nirmanakaya is actually a, a manifestation of the dharmakaya in our world system, in our eon. He's the one supreme nirmanakaya who um, kind of like like manifested a human form with human language to give us these kind of teachings. So, so this is a creative force? Or? You could say that, I think so. Dharmakaya is like a, you could say it's a creative force. I mean, no words reach it, but um, it sounds that way to me. Yeah, the manifestations are like creative, oh, display, that's another nice word, I think. The, the Dharmakaya displays itself as um, appearances to benefit beings. And you could say, that's part of the story here, is the display is always to benefit beings. And then in Zen, we have things like, um, those teachings are cosmic and far out, and you know, the Chinese are like down to earth, and the Indian Buddhists are like, let's, especially Zen people, we need, how, do we, how can we relate to these three Buddha bodies in a more Zen way? 
And then they'll say things like, um, we all share these three bodies. It's not like some special thing for Shakyamuni. Everybody has three Buddha bodies. And, um, and their, um, the emptiness of their aware, of ordinary awareness right now, the emptiness of our, we all are awareness right now. We all are aware. The emptiness of awareness is the Dharmakaya. We don't appreciate it usually, but our awareness is empty right now, and that is the Dharmakaya. If we really appreciated it, we could appreciate it. <laughs> and the Sambhogakaya, the, the, light, the light body, the bliss body, is like the knowing faculty, the aware aspect of awareness, which has something to do with like light and, and appearance um, before it's totally solidified. Just our mind is able to um, know, and that knowing is like a kind of correlation of like this kind of light bodies. And then um, Nirmanakaya, uh, for us, um, sometimes is talked about, maybe this is a, a slight Tibetan twist on how they talk about three bodies, because uh, I think it's beautiful. Nirmanakaya is like um, the unimpededness of awareness. We might say, um, uh, wouldn't it make more sense to say, it's when, you know, these, these like bodies and, um, and the room and all this is nirmanakaya. That would be one way to talk about it too. It's really just dharmakaya manifesting as a room and a body and words and all the, all the stuff that we experience. That would be one way of saying nirmanakaya for all of us. That's our nirmanakaya. This is our nirmanakaya that we, that we experience. But uh, unimpededness is an interesting one because instead of saying it's... Um, it's slightly, instead of saying that, that um, Dharmakaya is projecting the world, unimpededness is more like space like Dharmakaya is so open that nothing um, impedes it. So all this stuff, uh, the, uh, our bodies and the world and all, is um, is um, is part of the unimpededness of reality, body of Buddha. It's, uh, in other words, um, anything is allowed to happen in the Dharmakaya. The Dharmakaya is so spacious; it allows everything, and almost like that allowance, that complete allowance with no exceptions. Is like Nirmanakaya. It's kind of a cool way of talking. So therefore, um, and re- remembering still that I think that Nirmanakaya is always benefiting beings. So, um, but part of, because the way of benefiting beings in the manifested world is so allowing, it allows for like violence and stuff in order to benefit beings. This is, I think, like all that kind of hard. <laughs> Maybe it's it's going too far, to open to that. But um, that would be a really non-dual perspective, right? And in non-dual perspective, you can't have anything, any exceptions to it, right? So, um, uh, could it be that everything that's manifesting in this realm is to benefit beings in some way or another? It's hard, that for me is very difficult, and I imagine it would be for you. 
And uh, but I did hear that Dungshan once said um, Dungshan was hanging out with his student in the um, in the garden, and they saw a um, a hawk swoop down and grab an innocent um, mole or you know a hedgehog or a mouse or something, and uh, digging its talons into the into the healthy flesh of this um, of this rodent and the rodent screaming was carried off into the air and the, the monk said to Dungshan um, why does it have to come to this? and Dungshan said it's all for your sake no I don't think it's a guilt pressure <laughs> No, I think it's like I hear it it's just like everything that's happening really unpleasant things are um, everything is for us our sake and our, for our sake how I would take it as just like so we can learn about this world and learn about cause and effect and learn about pain and pleasure and learn about the Bodhisattva precepts and um, and uh, and um we don't reject any experience. The nirman- as the nirmanakaya, something like that. It's getting late here. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> shall we? Shall we stop? Enough for now, since we have another one more round <laughs> this afternoon. If it wasn't for the evolution of life, uh, you know strandedness of any conscious entity, you know, it would just be rolling in illusion. I mean, even just to be able to grasp and say, oh, this is my object, this is my house, my car, compared to wherever subjectivity evolved from in the long history of life or subjectivity itself, it's amazing restless and violent in this very, very difficult mm. You say we, world. if not for that, we would be rolling in delusion? No, just rolling in like consciousness grasping onto any form, which is probably where consciousness came from. Ultimately, it was originally. Uh, maybe there was a formless, of course. Yeah, no. When it, when it began um, experiencing this life through, you know, Purusha or whatever you call that vehicle of individual awareness and interacting. Individual consciousness. Interacting. Mm-hmm. So eventually we have this huge architecture that allows us to perceive objects. Yeah. Like this is. This is the have, this is the relief just to believe I'm this thing is tremendous relief from I am the the whole yeah like somebody with brain damage mm-hmm. give anything for this oh oh I see you know? to and believe like, we're the individual person yeah to just be this and if mm-hmm. you consider what where life came from not, mm-hmm. not even having vision not having mm-hmm. sight touch anything uh, yeah we came, we came a long way just to be able to have this. And then to take it further to like also remember where it came from is. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's a price to pay for being for individual consciousness, right? Oh, that's very hard. He, it's it's we get great joy and awe and um, little glimpses into who we really are, but then it's all this suffering comes with just the fact of it, even the even the most refined individual consciousness like the deva realms are individual separate consciousnesses 
it's not um, it's not totally free. Of course. Right? And, and so the Buddha is kind of emphasizing that, like all this amazing manifestation is um, is wonderful and amazing, and how can we be free from it in it? You know, kind of the early Buddhist model is how can we become free from it? That's the kind of like let's no more birth as individual consciousness. The Mahayana is more like how can we be free in it? Yeah. Like let's vow to keep um, manifesting individual consciousnesses because that's the realm where sentient beings are suffering, and then we can help the other individual consciousnesses because it's hard to do it as a the Dharmakaya takes form in order to help beings because otherwise we get, it's hard to understand the teaching of the Dharmakaya like straight up. Right? <laughs> We're trying to also. Right? So it just wants to be made aware of awareness? The Dharmakaya? <laughs> Um, that's the goal for sentient beings is to um, be aware of awareness as our true nature and that it's boundless and, and um, free and uh, you could say that's the goal of sentient beings the goal of the Dharmakaya doesn't exist that's why it's, it's sometimes say like those, you need those vows made by sentient beings Interestingly, for the Dharmakaya to take form because it doesn't have its own vows. 